Welcome to Healthonomics, a podcast about health, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the economics department. Today, my guest is Dr. Anika Ayar. Anika is an assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the economics department. Anika, welcome to the show. Hi, Aina. Thanks for having me on your show. Pretty happy to have Anika here because she's actually one of my committee members, and we obviously have similar research interests. And so the paper that we're talking about today, Anika presented recently at the Southern Economic Association Conference in Houston, Texas last month. And this was the first conference I had ever attended and presented. Um, So it was exciting to see people present and be at an event in person. Um, So today, that paper that we're talking about, it is co-authored with Dr. Naveen Sunder on health insurance and infant mortality evidence from India. But before we get into that, tell me more about your background in this field of economics. Okay, so um, my love story with the economics kind of started with a development class that I took in my undergraduate studies in India. Um, you see, growing up in India, even if you are not poor, we have to confront poverty and its consequences every day. So, you know, whether it was seeing somebody we know lose their first child due to some health complications, my uh, maid's daughter getting married too early uh, and then getting pregnant soon after. Uh, you know, their children not vaccinated and that being a huge debate with my uh, maid and my parents, a son who dropped out of school because, you know, his father was a drunk or, you know, even like bailing out house workers from loan sharks regularly. And then people we know dying too young, you know, as children, we were just forced to confront that living in poverty came with these barriers and no matter how hard these people worked, um, you know, there was clearly there was a huge barrier for them. So and, you know, it kind of always made me upset that to think about the fact that some of us had these amazing opportunities around us, uh, while, uh, while others didn't. And so when I took my first development economics class, I was really inspired to learn that we can change our circumstances, and we can change the circumstances of these people around us who really struggle. And the class taught me the things like, Poverty was generational, but proper access to health, education, you know, better financial opportunities. These things could provide a way out of poverty. And I kind of became inspired um, with this knowledge that, you know, community actions or government policies would be key to these changes. And that's sort of kind of got me into the next phase. I did my master's in economics and um, I was sort of inspired after I did my master's, I I kind of um, started first working at a social business incubator that was supporting entrepreneurs who wanted to uh, use information technology to build businesses for rural development in India. So this incubator was uh, called the Rural Technology Business Incubator, RTBI for short, was run out of this premier engineering institute in India called the Indian Institute of Technology uh, that was located in Chennai, where I grew up. Uh, that's a city in the south of India. And, you know, just to give you some context, so this was back in 2007. I had just started working there. Uh, You know, the concept of mobile or, you know, a computer with internet was remote. 
Um, the state that I worked in was considered a developed state because we had higher literacy rates than the rest of the country. But everywhere where I traveled, um, I mean, I learned a lot about the life circumstances of people living in rural areas uh, through these experiences. I mean, again, access to good health services meant a 30 to 40 minute drive, right, to a health center. And then a one to two hour bus journey if your condition was serious. And then you were lucky to meet a doctor when you showed up. And, you know, most likely had to make do with some sort of nurse health practitioner. Again, if you were lucky, otherwise you just went home because there was nobody there. And so this organization that I was working for called the Rural Technology and Business Incubator was trying to support socially conscious entrepreneurs in building and developing services um, in the areas of things like health, education, using low cost broad, uh, broadband, sorry, low cost broadband technology to deliver these services. Okay, and I was on the research team, and I remember one of the first projects that I worked on um, was the fact that these engineers at this institute had come up with a low-cost telemedicine kit that could collect some basic health data. And the goal for the entrepreneur was to figure out a way to link this data to some sort of computer with an internet so you can connect them to an urban doctor. And the problems were many, right? So the entrepreneur had to figure out who I was working with, had figure out a business model that would facilitate market development because and this was un, and this is 2007 so it's not an easy task right and why we don't think twice about you know paying money on our mobiles anymore i was on the research team and one of the first projects that i worked on was to deliver health services and the engineers at the school i was working at had come up with this telemedicine kit that was low cost and that could work on solar power because in rural areas in India, there's not enough energy, um, you know, to, to run devices. And the goal of the entrepreneur who I was working with was to figure out a business model that could, you know, create the link between the person who was, you know, giving their data through this telemedicine kit to an urban doctor or a specialist. And this was not an easy task because while we don't think twice about paying, uh, you know, on mobile phones these days and stuff, that time there was no way to there was no platform in which to collect money from a patient and then transfer it to the doctor and the technology was not yet available for this kind of stuff and also the person who was delivering these services to these rural areas had to be health and internet savvy which in 2007 meant you would leave the rural area if you had these skills and go work in an urban area so you know, textbook challenges and economics that you'd learn about played out at every turn. For example, a high of initial investments, lack of productive resources to implement these plans, lack of information on part of the patient on what this was all about, all created high transaction costs. And, you know, so instead of learning all this from a book, I was, I actually got to experience a lot of this stuff firsthand. And I think that's also, you know, kind of reinforced my love for economics because I found a really nice way to make sense of the world that I was trying to navigate. And, you know, in my discussions and interviews, I also came to learn that income constrained people will often make very harsh trade offs between decisions to spend on health and other services when they're income constrained. They'll choose between who in the house they will spend health, uh, spend their money on for health, um, you know, because they have to make that tough decision. And in fact, that is what inspired me to write uh, my uh, sole authored paper called The Unintended Consequences of Targeted Health Insurance on Intra-Household Allocations, which was published at the Journal of Development Studies. Now, after I worked there, I moved to the Center for Budget and Policy Studies at Bangalore to work more closely with policymakers on health policy design. 
And when I was there, the government of Karnataka, uh, where the city Bangalore was located, was implementing a first-of-its-kind health insurance program called the Rashtriya Swastha Bhima Yojana. So think Medicaid for the poor in India, but, you know, the first time ever. And, you know, our group that I was working with at that time was one of the institutes that was interested in studying its effectiveness and interested in supporting the government in their efforts to get this program off the ground because we were we strongly believed that that, you know, might make some sort of dent um, or at least help people on the, you know, people living in these areas access healthcare. In theory, the idea was fascinating that health insurance can improve health access. And the program was quite interestingly designed to account for all the peculiarities of this rural Indian context. So uh, for 430 USD, which in 2008, when I, I moved there in 2009, covered around sec- like, you know, most of secondary and tertiary care in India, um, uh, they provided this 430 USD coverage. And while the premium was paid completely by the government, both the, we call uh, the federal and the state governments, uh, these families had to sign up, who were below poverty line families had to sign up for just 40 cents. And just to give you a sense of how generous the program was, this program was around three times the minimum income guarantee in India that was available at that time. So a great program. And it was also very unique because it was the first time that the government was trying to do uh, public-private partnerships uh, with you know both public and private hospitals participating and public and private insurance companies participating. So it was a very innovative program. Uh, the other thing that they did that you know had not been tried before uh, was that they covered travel stay costs, uh, which were often generally very pro- prohibitive to poor rural households who were trying to get access to care. They even implemented a smart card with biometric information so that they could you know, track the program participants. So the government was pulling out all stops to get this program together. And in the first two years that I was on the field, you know, helping the government evaluating it, it was a mess. I mean, I saw it firsthand, how ill-coordinated the program was. I had been interviewing beneficiaries, health insurance companies, third-party administrators, the insurance regulation board in the country, government coordinators, and the mess was unbelievable. Everyone was pointing out on, on why things were not working on the field. There was no information, no coordination, no payments, lots of confusion. The tech was all ahead of its time. So, you know, they hadn't figured out the back end properly. So, you know, much of the mess that you saw in the ACA when it was first implemented, that was that was the story back then. And by the time I left for my PhD, I was pretty uh, skeptical about this program. I, I honestly didn't think it would work. Um, but I was curious to know, you know, maybe maybe this did have some, could have some impact. And uh, but anyway, I didn't know. I, I left the country thinking we'll see in a few years what's going to happen. But right now it's a mess. And I had also at that time become very interested in health economics, and for a few reasons. So, you know, um, so for example, we were running our evaluations of the program. Program, the first thing that we saw is that people who were younger and who were more educated were, you know, more likely to report in our surveys that they had the insurance cards. And, you know, consequently, I learned that this was something called cream skimming when I took a health class in grad school. Very common for insurance companies to do. I also kind of knew that people who were sick were more likely to sign up. Yeah, sure. We know something called adverse selection. 
But then I would always hear insurance companies complain about, you know, how this impacts that bottom line. And now I know this to be something called the death spiral. And there was another huge complaint of the insurance companies that doctors should not be compensated at any rate that they wanted to. They were trying to basically reduce supply, reduce demand. And on the other side, I would hear doctors complain about the prices of procedures being too low. Again, you know, very common practices for insurances, insurance companies to you know, uh, create a price ceiling to curb supplier-induced demand. So a lot of stuff that I was seeing around me, I mean, you know, I was, I was interested to learn, you know, how to make sense of this. And, and of course, like I said, that one thing that I've always been passionate about is I think, you know, health economics does a great job and economics does a great job in providing a useful theoretical framework to understand some of these issues. And the only thing that I knew back in India was that, you know, America had this amazing, robust health insurance sector and that was costing a lot. So this is 2009 and 10. So I had also heard of something called the Affordable Care Act uh, that was in the works and that would provide everybody with health insurance. And I was curious. I was curious to know why health was so expensive in the U.S., how health insurance somehow contributed to it. And how, you know, America was planning to implement the Affordable Care Act, because imagine a world with universal health insurance where everybody gets access to care and where insurance companies and providers were so happy. I just wanted to learn about it firsthand. So, you know, that brought me to my PhD uh, at the University of California on Riverside, where I did a PhD in economics. I really like hearing the background of your story because typically when you talk to economists and you ask them for their background, they say, oh, I went to school here and I did this here and I did this postdoc, but your story is so much more interesting and a real life story of learning about health economics before you ever started your PhD. So thanks for that. So back to the paper that we are talking about um, on health insurance and infant mortality evidence from India. So what is the primary research question that you were looking to answer in this paper? And what are your highlighted findings? So when I was doing my PhD in University of California, Riverside, um, at that time, there was not out, there was no outcomes data available from India for me to do an evaluation. But I was working on looking at a health insurance program in Vietnam um, that provided children under five with free health insurance. And some of my work has been published in the Journal of Business uh, Ethics and the Journal of Development Studies. But I continue to keep track of the RSBY because I was, like I mentioned, curious to know how this program would do. And, you know, after I left between 2012 and 2014, the tons of things happened. There was a lot of news articles. Suddenly, a lot more people got covered. The program was in the news all the time on stuff. I mean, basically criticisms and compliments. You would imagine the range of, you know, uh, media attention that it got for those two years. Um, so when the government changed in 2014, um, uh, I basically asked my mom, who had then just retired, to download all the program administration data that was available. And um, basically, uh, my experience had taught me that, you know, when governments change in India, things happen to stuff that that's in the news. So I just went ahead and did it. And in fact, basically, two things happened when the government changed power, um, changed, the, when the governments changed in India in 2014 after their election. One is that they stopped updating the website soon after. So I got access to this very unique administration data at the end of it. And the second part of it is that they revamped the program. So in 2018, they relaunched the program um, and it's now something slightly different. So cut to 2018, when I was working at Cornell University as a postdoc, um, 
outcomes data finally becomes available uh, because there's a survey called the National Family Health Survey of India. I guess uh, for health researchers, we know this as the demographic health surveys. Um, and now the IPUMs also host this. Uh, so they release their data set. And so when I met my co-author Naveen um, and told him about this project of mine, we decided that, okay, let's start working on, you know, let, the first and most interesting question is, does insurance reduce mortality? We want to know if this program is effective. Is it a really good input into health? Does it reduce mortality? And the thing that both of us cared to learn more about was infant mortality in India. Um, and both of us had been working on child health, but separately, Naveen's, uh, Naveen does work in health and education. Uh, my focus is more on health. So we decided to combine our skills and try to understand whether this program had any effect on this outcome that we cared about in our own research, which is infant mortality. So what did we find? So in this particular research of ours, you know, and, and to my surprise, because honestly, I did not, I wasn't too sure this program had worked, but I knew that it had, you know, rolled out in a big, in a big way across the country. So I was, I guess I had a healthy amount of skepticism on what, what we would find, but we ended up finding these robust results on how this program, how access, how having access to this program um, actually reduced infant mortality in India. And that sort of got us started with this paper. Infant mortality, that's a pretty dark uh, reality for developing countries. And I want to hear more about what does the infant mortality rates look like? What do those rates look like in India? In your paper, you mentioned that the infant mortality rate varies across states. What do you think is causing this? And also, why is infant mortality a significant public health indicator that we should be evaluating? To start with the more concrete question on, you know, what does infant mortality look like in India? Well, right now, infant mortality is about 30, 30 children die in the first year of their lives out of a thousand children born in India every year. And this has been reducing quite a lot over time. So it's not as if India has, I mean, India has been working on different kinds of interventions, but this is the average across the country. So India has about 28 states and about eight union uh, territories in the country where a population of 1.2 billion. Um, and so you can imagine that this problem is huge. And we contribute in terms of percentage where, where the biggest contributors to infant mortality across the world as a country, right? Because of our population as well. So it is, it is a problem, it's getting better, but there's obviously more that can be done. So that's at the national level. Now, within the country itself, there's a lot of variation on what causes, and or, or rather in, in terms of infant mortality rates. So infant mortality rates sometime, you know, uh, in some states in India, um, infant mortality rates are pretty high. They're similar to what we see in sub-Saharan Africa, in poorer countries in sub-Saharan Africa. But there are places in India where infant mortality is low, and this kind of is more on the line of what we think of uh, uh, infant mortality in, you know, uh, countries in Latin America, well, I guess South America, in countries in South America um, as well. So we have this huge variation. Some of it comes from the fact that there's a lot of regional economic inequality within the country. So the state that I, I grew up in is one of the better developed states in the country, but there are other uh, uh, states that, are, that do worse off 
um, in terms of their health, education, income indicators. And uh, this affects the quality of public health services that are available in, the, in those areas that affects infant mortality rates. There's, I mean, of course, then the, there's the private investment channel. When people are poor, they don't have access to good health resources. That affects infant mortality rates. Uh, and this sort of plays out across the country in different ways, depending on the level, uh, level of development of the state, creating these intrastate variations on infant mortality. So the intrastate variation, why that exists across the country. And also to give you some context, uh, I must have heard it during COVID around May when India had the spike of people dying, people, you know, writing on Twitter, you know, requests for oxygen, requests for beds and, you know, to, to get their family relatives some care that they had in COVID. And all this came from urban areas in India. Um, it was a huge thing that was happening on Twitter. People were on. I remember that clearly. Yeah. And people died in large numbers. It's just crazy to even think about how how desperate people were and how sad that situation was. In fact, I was in India at that time when all this was happening. A lot of my family, my sister, for example, was on like WhatsApp groups, trying to figure out how to help people, connecting them to doctors, connecting them to hospitals. It was, it was chaotic. This is regular life in rural areas. People don't have access to beds to give birth. They don't have access to oxygen. When they go to the doctors and they get diagnosed with something, they don't have access to drugs. Uh, so what we saw and in urban areas was just, you know, it kind of spotlighted some of the major health service constraints that we have in the country. We have a very robust public health system that works for most people. But the stories that we saw in COVID in urban areas are just regular you know, life for people in rural areas. And so you can imagine when you have all these shortages, like drug shortages, when you have infrastructure shortages, doctor shortages, you can imagine that there are certain groups of people who are more vulnerable than others. And then no surprise, it's women and children in India. Um, and this is kind of what causes us to have an infant mortality rate that's still high. We're figuring it out, like I said, um, but you know that's kind of where we are with this. Why is it important? Well, uh, so you, you know, the Grossman health model here will tell you that, you know, health inputs are quite important uh, in order to determine our long term uh, uh, health and income productivity, right? You have good healthcare access, you have good income, uh, then you're likely to be a successful adult, you're more likely to earn higher wages. Um, there are a lot of there's a lot of research that even shows the intergenerational effects, which means that not only are you benefiting, but your children and then your grandchildren consequently have better health. Douglas Armin and Janet Curry have this also theory that most of the health investments that we do in the first five years of our life are the ones that are the most important to determine our adult health outcomes. So if we're born with any sort of you know disadvantage for any reason. The first, we have the first five years as, um, you know, um, uh, we have the first five years to, to, to sort of correct some of these uh, inequities that we have in health. And these, you know, if, we, uh, if we're able to provide children better access to nutrition, better access to health services, a lot of people have shown that these have long-term impacts. Children are, have higher, I mean, uh, adults have higher wages, um, adults have uh, better health outcomes, 
lower incidence of non-communicable diseases. So these are all well documented. So technically, as development economists, when we are thinking about trade-offs, uh, the first five years are the, are the years in, in which if we catch a child and if we invest heavily in them, then we see the greatest returns in terms of their adult health. So that's why it's really important to look at this age group. And one of the indicators that tells us how well we're doing with this is infant mortality, right? If we're able to prevent babies from dying by giving them, um, like I mentioned, nutrition, healthcare services, then we're actually creating very productive economies, adults, and then economies in the future as well. So that's why it's so important that we should be looking at infant mortality because the first five years of life are so indicative of later on health in adulthood. And I was just talking about this on um, an interview the other day with Jean Wendell about the long-term effects of childhood health. And that's why investment early on is so important. Um, So in your paper, you mention that the utilization of reproductive health services is pretty low. And why, why is this happening? What do we know about this? Is this a contributing reason to infant mortality rates? I can assume that it would be, but I want to hear more details from you. So, yes. So, um, in fact, most of the research I'll tell you around the world, the one way to reduce infant mortality is just to give better access to mothers, healthcare access to mothers. So in India, like I was mentioning to you, if you have to travel 30 to 40 minutes to your nearest health center to get access to health services, and, you know, the opportunity cost of that decision is basically wages not earned, what will you decide if your household is income constrained? So in India, these kind of trade-offs are very common. In addition to things, for most poor households, um, they may not be able to afford quotation services for regular checkups with doctors, right? So, you know, you have to go meet a doctor. You can't sure that when you land up there, the doctor is there to meet you. So why bother to make the trip? So the government has been trying to innovate over the last, last I would say, 10 years. They've been trying to actually send, you know, health workers to the villages in order to get women's services, um, you know, try you know, basic things like checking their blood pressure, you know, making sure that they're taking iron medic, uh, sorry. Uh, in, so in India, just to give you context, India has a lot of anemia. Women have a lot of anemia. So getting iron during their pregnancies is very important. Simple things like this. So we, in, in terms of the global health community, we've solved a lot of these problems. We know what it takes to create a healthy baby, you know, and get at, at least get a health, uh, you know, get mothers um, and children to hospitals. We know what to do when, you know, infants, um, are born too early. We've, we've solved some of these major medical and technical issues with regard to childbirth, but the last mile issues are still difficult. For example, India, besides having, you know, besides this being a money problem in terms of getting people services, there's also the issue of education, low literacy levels. So, um, you know, it's a common misnomer that having iron tablets in India changes your baby's skin color. So, you know, makes them more dark. So women don't want dark babies. So sometimes they will, they will not comply with the treatment protocol because they don't want to affect their babies. Um, so there are all kinds of things that occur in India that, that keep utilization of health services low. And even when, when there are emergencies, they don't have ambulance services. How, how do you get a woman to a hospital that's one to two hours away, Right. So you start adding all these complications, both on the demand side and on the supply side. 
And then you have this huge issue of utilization of reproductive services. So women often don't go in for their first antenatal checkup till their six, four months in, right, to their pregnancies. They don't necessarily get all the services they need when they go in. So that means they have to come back. So they won't come back if they can't, or, you know, if they can't, ever can't schedule something. Um, and all these kind of things spiral into increased, you know, probability of a woman developing a complication that goes uh, missed. And then when you have that situation and when a woman's giving birth, if you don't have an ambulance, then you know what that, what that all means, right? These are kind of some of the issues that happen on the field and on the ground, which is why why we see a macro indicator like utilization of health services to be pretty low, even though on paper, there are services that are provided, right? So we, there are health centers that are supposed to be staffed with doctors. Um, drugs are supposed to be provided for free through the Indian system. Um, you know, ambulances should be available for every few villages. All these things are there on paper, but they don't necessarily translate into service delivery in these areas. So everything you've been discussing essentially falls under the umbrella of the social determinants of health. And I think the social determinants are such an important field of economics that deserves investigating and studying. Because like you said, even on paper, if these services are provided, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're being utilized due to these, you know, social blockade that we don't really think about getting transportation to the hospital or rumored fallacy of iodine tablets changing the color of an infant is a lot to wrap your head around that that is, you know, significantly preventing people from utilizing reproductive healthcare services. So your main focus in this paper is on the public health insurance program that you kind of mentioned earlier that the government of India came out with in 2007, I believe. And in the paper, you referred to it as the RSBY program. So that's what we'll call it today as well. So what did this insurance program cover? What similar programs were available prior to this? I know you said it's kind of like a Medicaid program that we can think of in the US. And so what kind of provisions did this program have? Prior to this program, so this program was actually first announced in 2008. And uh, prior to this program, for the poor, there was not much in terms of health insurance. Well, there was nothing, actually. Um, you know, a person who was poor just had to go to the nearest health center and wait for the wait around for the doctor um, if they wanted to access the free health care um, through the public health sector. And if they had a little bit of money, then they could go to the private doctor, a, a, when I say a, a private provider, um, who would charge them you know, some amount they had to pay for. Uh, and they could get probably get so, uh, access to service a lot easier if they could pay for it. Right. So those were the two options that were available for most of the poor in India. Health insurance itself is, a, is, is a, I would say, an emerging sector in India um, prior to uh, 2008, for example, with the health insurance like that my parents had to buy. It's not the same as the US, it's not cashless. So my parents had to pay for their care and then they could, you know, you go to the insurance company and that get reimbursed. That's kind of the model that used to work in India. So prior to 2008. And um, so this program tried to change some of those things. So think Medicaid for the poor, 
but it covered only secondary and tertiary services. If you go to the doctor, uh, if you go to the hospital and you're admitted for an inpatient visit, then that gets covered under this program. It can be for anything. It can be a hysterectomy. It can be more serious, you know, a bypass surgery, whatever you get admitted for, uh, that's covered. Uh, and the program was innovative in the sense that it provided for the first time cashless transfers. So basically, the idea was that the poor could go to the hospital, but they would leave without a bill, right? Um, so that's what was very thought of as very innovative in this program at that time. In addition to things, uh, like I mentioned before, in order to get people um, care, they would actually co cover trans so ambulatory costs. Uh, they would also cover stay costs for a, a, for an attender uh, who was, you know, coming with the patient, which was also very innovative in this program. And each household was provided an annual coverage of, of about 30,000 rupees. And um, hospitals were mandated at that point of time not to charge people under this program any, you know, they were not allowed to charge them anything out of pocket. Uh, they had to settle everything with the insurance company. So that's kind of how this program was working on the field at this time. So it seems like a pretty comprehensive uh, program that offered a lot of coverage. So what were the main outcomes that you found? You were looking at how this program affected infant mortality rates. So what did you find? So we basically find that having, so for children who are born in areas where this program had become available, we saw huge, we saw decreases in their infant mortality and underdo mortality outcomes. So that mean, that meant that basically in the first year of a child's life, if you were born in an area that had access to this insurance program, some parts of the country didn't for, you know, whatever uh, random reasons. Uh, if you were born after the insurance program became available in your area, there was a 5% reduction in infant mortality by the time you were age one. And then by the time you were age two, there was a 10% reduction in your under two mortality in the country. So those are some of the big effects that we find in this program. The, the reason we see these reductions is that we also simultaneously see that there's an increase in reproductive health access for women. So for example, mothers who are covered under this program were more likely to go to the doctor for an antenatal checkup. Uh, were more likely to be met by a health professional when they went for those checkups, more likely to deliver their babies in hospitals rather than, you know, be attended by some sort of traditional birth attendant, and consequently more likely to go for a postnatal checkup. And these are kind of important points when you meet your doctor. First, they probably are providing you a lot of information on, you know, how to take care of your baby, what to do next. Consequently, we see that children who are born in these districts also report completing their immunization rates in India. So in India, it's like the average immunization rate to complete all the immunization rates in India is around 40%. So we see an 8 percentage point percent increase in completion of vaccination rates when the program becomes available. So we see all these huge interesting spillovers of having access to health insurance on health care access which we think are driving the reductions in mortality that we document. So the program reduced infant mortality. It increased access and utilization of reproductive health services. And it also improved the experience for pregnant mothers because you said that they were seeing the doctor far more. And 
the spillover effect you're talking about is that it increased vaccination and immunization rates for infants. So what it sounds like to me is that the program was effective and it worked. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to hear from you. Um, what similar programs have we seen in other developing countries, programs that are aiming to increase insurance coverage, public health insurance programs, and have these programs improved health outcomes? I'm curious, how does India compare to other countries in this area of public health insurance? So there are two success stories in uh, developing country literature. One is Thailand and one is Taiwan. And both of them, after they introduced health insurance, you know, public health insurance, some version of public health insurance in, um, in their countries, saw a reduction in infant mortality rates of about 10 to 20 percent. So where in the 5 to 10 percent range, they actually have much higher reductions in infant mortality with 10 to 20 percent. In fact, um, more recent literature from Medicaid uh, has shown that, you know, um, expansions in Medicaid, I think in the 80s, uh, I'm not sure, if, I think it's in the 80s and 90s, actually reduced infant mortality rates in the US by around the same amount, 10 to 20% as well, among future adults. So um, this is kind of in line with what we see in the literature in terms of health insurance effects. Um, there are some countries in which health insurance hasn't been as effective, like yeah, in China and Colombia, the results are not as straightforward. There have been reductions, but they haven't been um, um, as uh, as robust. Uh, I think there's a recent paper in Mexico from Mexico who shows that actually access to the Segura Popular, which is another insurance program that was tar- similar to Medicaid, targeted to the poor in Mexico, had impacts on reducing infant mortality. And they also find that women who have access to this program are likely to um, get access to health services as well. So it seems to be the case that across the world, um, insurance does a very good job, um, even if not reducing mortality, it does a very good job of getting people to the doctor who probably didn't have access to the doctor. Um, and our sort of study contributes to that, you know, to that general insight that we have across the world, whether it's in Vietnam, uh, from where I did my research or, you know, like I mentioned, all these countries, you see that once people get access to health, health insurance, they just go to the doctors a lot more. So if you were to look at, because in this paper, you looked at infant mortality as an outcome. If you were to look at other outcomes, what would you look at and what do you think you would find? This is a very exciting area for research in India. Well, I just wrote up a paper, uh, which is now a working paper of mine, in which I find that not only has this insurance, you know, affected utilization of reproductive health services, I also find that this insurance program did a great job increasing access to other kinds of uh, preventative health services. Like, so basically what happened is that, uh, what I'm seeing is that access to health insurance increases screenings for things like cancers in the country. Um, so you can see that, you know, th- this is kind of the first part of the research that I'm developing. Another part of research that I have been working on is to look at whether this program was effective. So the one thing that the government talked a lot about when they implemented the program and they sort of the way they sold it to the electorate, so to speak, was that they said that this program was going to be extremely effective in reducing out-of-pocket spending for people, right, which they, th- which they attributed to why people don't access healthcare. Now, um, you know, consequently, research from other developing countries has shown that 
when you give people access to health insurance, they go to doctors, but they might spend more out of pocket, right? Because what health insurance has done is inadvertently reduce the barrier for market access. So once it reduces the barrier, people go and access the doctors, then they have to spend something, you know, on something that's not covered, some drug that's not covered, then they're willing to spend more on their health, right? So uh, even though the government kind of sold this as, oh, we're going to reduce catastrophic health spending among these poor families, uh, the initial results didn't seem to suggest that that was very successful. Um, You know, I guess in research terms, they found no differences between households covered and not covered in terms of -of out-of-pocket spending. Uh, So I actually want to look, I'm actually looking at some newer research, some newer data, uh, trying to identify if this program had effects on health spending. um, And, you know, what dimensions of health did it actually work for? Did Did it actually help people with chronic conditions a lot more? Did it help people who are younger a lot more? Uh, who are the people who actually benefited from this program when we look at it at this national scale? So that's kind of, you know, how I see this research panning out in general. Um, but again, broad context to things is that most developing countries across the world have been implementing some sort of public health insurance or universal health insurance program. Uh, and one of the goals is to provide universal healthcare access. And so it's really useful to see in this particular, though India is, you know, India is one country, many of the things that we find in terms of our research are relevant for other developing countries who are also trying to do, you know, something similar um, in their own context in order to increase healthcare access. So there's a lot of interesting questions to be, you know, to be, for which we don't know much about. Does this, for example, in the U.S., there's a lot of literature that has developed around adverse selection, measuring adverse selection, measuring moral hazard, um, you know, measuring inefficiencies in healthcare uh, delivery, uh, and so on. And there's, uh, but there's not much known in, uh, not not much known from developing countries. So those are really interesting research questions that are still open. Um, Additionally, in the US, there's a lot of fabulous, you know, information on access to claims data, how to Patients react from the patient side of things. Um, this stuff is only now developing in India and be useful to see, you know, how insurance affects people's healthcare behaviors, um, healthcare spending, uh, and then long-term health outcomes as well. So given everything we know about the causal effect of a public health insurance program on child mortality rates. What are some new research questions? I know you've kind of been talking about this, but for all the grad students out there that are listening, what would be a good area of research for a grad student that's in a dissertation phase that would be eager to answer? What are some topics that would be hot for the job market right now? What's going to be hot for the job market? Now, let me just tell you what I think, I mean, people who are interested and passionate about research and health should be thinking about. Um, first is that there are a lot of unanswered questions in developing countries in terms of how and why people, uh, you know, how, how people access healthcare, what are the different barriers that determine whether they can access healthcare or not, uh, and how some of these policies can actually play some sort of role in alleviating these issues of access. There are tons of questions unanswered. And there are different kinds of groups of people who are interested in asking and answering these questions in different ways. A lot of development economists working on health will do often do randomized controlled tra- trials, uh, looking at you know how does how do people's 
uh, health change once they provide them deworming tablets or if they provide them more information, how does that change the way they access healthcare? So there are a lot of interesting questions that are still being worked upon in these contexts and we don't really know much um, as of now. So I think like a future grad student uh, who's interested in answering, you know, these basic questions on what drives access to healthcare, uh, what are the socioeconomic determinants of health, uh, and so on. There's there's a lot for them to explore. In addition to things, there are people like me who do a lot of quasi-experimental methods, trying to look at how to measure differences at more you know aggregate national levels uh, when we introduce different kinds of health policies, and developing countries. I mean, good or bad, tend to implement their programs in pretty random ways. So looking at the impact of health insurance um, in countries like Nigeria, uh, which I know has a new health insurance program that they've been implementing uh, and so on, could be like areas for people to pursue in terms of their research as well. In terms of what's hot, I think there's a lot of stuff that's interesting. I think any grad student who's interested in doing a program of research has a lot of opportunity in terms of how they can be entrepreneurial and what they can do in order to develop some niche program that they're interested in. Thanks for talking with me today. My guest has been Dr. Anika Iyer. This is Healthonomics. For more, go to healthonomics.co, where you can comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. I'm your host, Aina Katsikas. Thanks for listening. Oh,